Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, so guests, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my guest today is going to tell us a bit about himself and um, his story of uh, some struggles he's had that started in high school. So if you would introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, thanks, Christine. My name is Travis Lovestead. I'll be 32 at the end of this month. I'm married. I have a seven-year-old kid, and I live in Washington State. Um, pretty much, uh, you know, like you mentioned, I was, you know, in high school, and uh, that's kind of where life really changed uh, for me personally. Um, I I didn't realize growing up. Um, you know, having an alcoholic father, how that would impact me in my later years. Um, the first memory I actually have as a child, I was about four years old. And I remember my dad being arrested for yelling at my mom because he came home drunk. Uh, that was my first childhood memory. So fast forward to high school, not having really a male influence in my life too much up until that point. Um, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to be a man, how to be a good person, what I want to do with my life, who do I want to become. Um, that's hard to figure out at 14 years old. Uh, my brother also um, has the same set of circumstances that I did. His father was a heavy, heavy alcoholic too. Um, his dad was actually violent with him. Uh, mine wasn't, he just wasn't really around. And uh, so me and my brother, of course, go figure, uh, ha I guess, have the addict tendencies and genes in us, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, my brother went down the primarily alcoholic path. Um, that wasn't so much of interest to me. I kind of found my toxic passion in drugs. And uh, when you're that young, you just don't understand the repercussions and complications from that long term. And you have no idea what being an addict really is until it happens to you. Um, you know, I, I barely graduated high school. It's not because I was a stupid person. I just didn't apply myself. And I was way too constant, uh, focused on just being popular and, and partying all the time and always trying to be around large groups of people and have everybody know my name. Um, and that was just way more important at the time than setting myself up for my future. Um, really, I would say like about 14 years old is when I started experimenting. Um, my brother used to sell lots of marijuana before it was legal in Seattle. And so every time I would see him, I would have endless access to that and beer. And it was kind of me and my older brother's bonding experience together. Um, at the time, it was harmless. I wasn't abusing it. It wasn't out of control. Uh, I felt like I was one of the bigger kids. Uh, and um, after that, you know, things just kind of went downhill. And if you want to interrupt at any time, Christine, ask questions, feel free. Um, but <laughs> uh, I would say right around 15, though, is when um, the big Oxycontin epidemic uh, 
hit us. And I was a freshman. I was hanging out with seniors of the football team. Um, I found my place. I thought I was the coolest kid ever. I felt accepted. Um, so going to senior parties, hanging out with older kids. And you know, I was driving, or I was in the back of one of the uh, pickup trucks of the football players, and there was two of them up front. And we were just going to a high school basketball game. And they started pulling out tinfoil and putting these pills on it in the front seat. And this, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And they're just smoking it. And they didn't seem to change. They just seemed pretty normal. And so being, you know, 14 and a half or whatever it was, I asked them, you know, what are you doing? And they said, oh, you're, you're not going to do this with us. We're not going to put you down this route. And I said, I don't even know what you're doing. Like, what's going on here? And they're like, we're, we're smoking Oxycontin. It's drugs. And I was like, does it feel good? They're like, yeah. I'm like, well, can I try it? And they're like, no. And I said, I can make my own choices. I'm an adult, you know? So they're like, okay, but just know if we give this to you, anything that happens afterwards, you take full responsibility for it. I was like, I got this. I'm 14. I know everything. Well, I tried it and obviously I really liked the way that it made me feel. It took away all my stress, all my, my anxiety, whatever pain I had in my life, it was non-existent. Um, it pretty much just made me a zombie with this really high euphoric feeling. Um, and for somebody, I think that young, that's a dangerous feeling because it really gives you a false sense of reality. Um, so after that, I mean, really for the next, God, 15 years on and off, it's just been a struggle. Um, at some point around 18, Oxycontin went away. They, they banned the old formula where kids could smoke it. And so after that went away, the heroin rush came in, which is the next best thing. Right. And it was cheap. Um, and it was everywhere. So everybody was doing that switched and, uh, man, I, I just can't believe the, the destruction that caused so many people and so many families. Um, I don't think I know anyone that's not affected by it to some degree. So were you and, smoking uh, the heroin? Cause you were smoking the Oxycontin. Were you smoking the heroin too? Or the, I'm sorry. The Oxycontin. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what most of us started on. Nobody just usually goes straight to using needles. I mean, that's such a hardcore jump to do that. Um, unfortunately, that is part of my story. And I think being diabetic really helped because I had an endless supply of needles and I wasn't afraid of them. Um, and I was, let's see here, I was 18 years old. Uh, my best friend, Mike, really great guy and he's actually clean today also and has a family pretty successful guy um he was a semi big time local heroin dealer for our area uh we met through some friends but we were we just became so close and we're so close to this day and so uh, i was hanging out with him one night with a couple other people they were delivering drugs i was the driver and we get pulled over by eight undercover cop cars in a Kmart parking lot. And I had no idea why they only wanted him. So they, needless to say, they arrested my friend. He went to prison for two and a half years. And that night I just felt lost. I felt like I lost a piece of my life. My best friend is now gone. Um, 
So I went to another drug dealer's house because I was just in the, in the midst of my addiction. Um, and that was the first night I decided to try injecting heroin because I was so depressed, so angry, so confused. And I thought I needed to take it to the next level because it just wasn't cutting it for me anymore what I was doing. So the first night I had to have somebody else do it for me because I had no idea how to do it. And I overdosed right there in that person's apartment my first time. Woke up in the hospital and wanted to do it all over again. That's how sick this disease is. Um, it just makes you feel like you can't live without it and nothing else in your life is important. So I would say over the next 10 years, um, God, I probably went to 10 rehabs. I probably ended up in the ER at least eight different times overdosing in different locations. And uh, somehow through it all, I never got arrested. I never got a criminal record, never had to go to jail or prison. Um, and I'm very grateful for that because obviously I wouldn't be in the career that I am today if I had a criminal record. Granted, you know, I wasn't robbing people and breaking into houses and doing that kind of stuff. Not that that makes me be more better, uh, better an addict or anything, but um, you know, it just takes people different places. It just depends on who you are in your path, I guess. You know, I always had good jobs. I was normally able to afford my addiction. And when I couldn't, I had a lot of stuff that I could usually sell or something, you know? Um, so at the height all, of addiction, how, how much money were you spending each day for your habit? If I had money, um, I could spend a couple hundred bucks a day. Yeah. You know, if I was going to a party for the weekend, it could be a thousand. Um, as you can imagine, that was a lot of wasted money over the last 15 years. <laughs> um, but that's just the, you know, part of the consequences of it. It ruins you financially, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, literally all of the above. And then that trickles down to your family and friends too. Yeah, so I've, I've met your mom. She's a lovely woman. I really, really like her. And I the, how she has su supported you um, through the years, once I heard your story, um, as a mom myself, I was just really had a high level of respect for her. Um, so how did that time um, of, you know, especially you're, you're in rehab, you've had an overdose, you're in rehab, blah, blah, blah. I'm guessing relationships with maybe your brother and your mom were impacted by that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what that was like yeah so me and my brother never really had a good relationship my brother's 10 years older than me and i don't want to say anything bad about him but uh he was always so focused on trying to be the center of attention that he thought i was being the baby the apple of our mom's eye when in all reality that wasn't true and so he always resented me just for being born he always thought i was my mom's favorite which wasn't true and he just created this whole narrative around who i was as his brother and uh it made it really difficult um to have any type of relationship with him um when we were both using together that was probably the only time that me and my brother actually got along and had any sort of relationship and fun. Um, as soon as we both got clean or semi clean, um, his view towards me got 
even more destructive. Um, he didn't want to be around me. He thought I was the problem in everybody's lives, that I ruined every relationship. It was just me, me, me. It was all my fault. Um, and it was just really hard to be around somebody like that. Uh, you know, I, I have two brothers, but one that I grew up with and the one I grew up with, we don't want anything to do with each other. And it's hard to separate your brother out of your life when that's been somebody that you've looked up to your whole life, but he doesn't even realize that or care. Um, and you know, uh, the last time I, I was in the hospital and I almost died and, uh, you know, my mother went over there for, to be consoled, you know, because she thought she was losing me, of course. And, you know, my brother was not sensitive to her and what she was going through, didn't even care what was happening to me, never called and reached out to me to offer any support or love or anything. And uh, that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me at that point for the relationship. Not that we had one anyways, but I just realized, I mean, I don't want to be jealous of my brother. I want to have a relationship with my brother. And if he can't be the same way, there's no point of trying to chase somebody down and change their mind. Um, outside of that, the relationship with my mom, it's kind of been like a roller coaster our whole life. Um, she's always loved me, always supported me, even when she shouldn't have. But it's because she also knew too, that if she just was there for me and my brother, at some point, she had faith that we would figure this out and get through this. And if it wasn't for her, I can guarantee you I would be in prison or dead or homeless at this point. Um, it's for her love and her support is the reason why I'm here today, honestly. Um, she always believed in us, even when we didn't believe in ourselves. And, and I'm, I'm going to guess, guess from the people you know who are in recovery um, that your mom was kind of different than a lot. I know a lot of, of parents just step back and just do that whole so-called tough love thing and figure, you know what, I can't, I'm not going to be around and watch him destroy himself and so on. So um, yeah, I, I like that your story includes that, you know, having that support from a, a parent, someone who loves you and sees that there is a light at the end of the tunnel can be part of someone who's in that active addiction can think about. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I don't know what the statistical numbers are as far as people coming from a traumatic background or not having support or not. I mean, I don't, I don't really know, but from what I could gather, most people either don't have family anymore or their family doesn't care about them or their family's dead and they just had to do this all by themselves. And I feel like that's a lot harder to get through addiction when it's you against the world, you know? Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. So tell yeah. us how you got to the point where you are today. So I, I know you're a successful real estate broker and a, a loving husband and dad. I, I know all these wonderful things about you, but I, I, given what you've been through, what has been the path that got you there? You said you've been to rehab more than once. So obviously one stint in rehab didn't do it. So what was it that finally got you to say, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to start working at recovery. Um, I think af after this last time, almost two years ago, when I was in the hospital and I woke up from that coma, um, kind of having, in a sense, lost everything again, um, and then having to learn how to like walk and take care of myself and eat food, just these basic human, uh, you know, things. And I just realized that 
I need to make the, the most out of my life. I know that I can't live in this fantasy world every day that everything's going to be perfect, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I was 30 years old at that point. And I'm like, I just need to like continue to get my shit together. I mean, I owe my mom that I owe my child that I owe whatever partner I'm going to be with in the future that, and I owe myself that too, most importantly. And God knows it's, it's not that I didn't have enough life experience or maturity at that point from all the experiences. Um, I just, you just have to get to a point where it's like enough is enough. And you just have to pull your head out of your ass. I mean, excuse my language, but that's just the reality of it. Um, it's so easy when you're an addict to play the victim, you know, because you're like, well, this person doesn't have addiction. So of course their life's easier. Poor me, you know? Um, and it, it's true and it's a valid excuse, but at the same time, if you use that for everything and you believe that you're never going to achieve anything in your life. Honestly, it's this being stuck in this mindset of the world's against me. I was dealt a shit hand of cards in life. Oh, poor me, poor this. But what I've realized is addicts and alcoholics out of all the rehabs and all the meetings that I went to and social events and whatever, there's some of the most like artistic and smart people inherently that I've actually ever met. And I, like, can you imagine if these people got and stayed clean, what they could actually do too, if they believed in themselves and had support, like it's insane. I mean, I'm, I'm maybe a small percentage of some, some of them who did something with their life, but there's people who are doctors and lawyers, you know, it's like, <laughs> it, it's crazy. Yeah. So I know um, people who don't understand addiction would say, well, you know, why don't you just stop? I mean, you go, you have this, this, uh, you know, overdose, you're in the hospital, you wake up. Why don't you just, just stop? Why don't you just say, you know what, that's enough for that. Why, why can't you just do that? I, it's nothing like being schizophrenic, but in a way, I'm just going to kind of like relate it to that. It, it's when you just aren't in control of something in your mind and in your body, right? Um, somebody with schizophrenia can take medication to level them out, hopefully. Uh, this, there's no medication or no cure for it. Uh, and, and that's why it's so hard to just stop. On top of that, when you like the way it makes you feel, when you get addicted to this lifestyle of always going and having no responsibility and, and running around and the excitement of kind of being bad at the same time um, and just the overall hold it has on you when, you when you stop using drugs for four to six hours and your withdrawals start kicking in and your body just feels sick and you know the only thing you can do to make it stop is to get more. Of course, that's going to be hard. Nobody wants to sit there detoxing, sweating, shaking, having flu-like symptoms, your body's cramped and aching. I mean, it's miserable. So it's just hard to stop. You know, if it was, if it was so easy, everybody would do it, right? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's, that's the point I was trying to get to. <laughs> no one chooses that life and how, how you get there so gradually as you did, right? Not starting out with immediately, hey, let's just start shooting heroin, but you know, kind of gradually getting to a point um, with that definitely, I think is probably a pretty common story. So um, how, how do you stay uh, clean now? What, what is it? What's the secret sauce in your life? Well, I found, I found a lot of happiness um, in my wife, honestly, um, in my kid. 
granted my son doesn't live with me full time. He's here right now. So like I get to enjoy the time that he's here. And uh, I really, it kind of goes back to that support, right? Like when you really love people, it's even, it makes it even harder to disappoint them. You don't want to hurt them. Um, and for me also, I go to Narcotics Anonymous. Um, that's kind of like my safe place and, and what it is for a lot of people with my circumstance. Um, and I feel that that helps, but it's so easy to forget kind of where you came from and what helped you because when you start forming another life and it gets packed full of things and work and life, you slowly start to separate from that and it's totally natural. And that's something you can't ever do is separate from whatever's working for you to keep you having that normal life, whether that's religion, a 12-step program, whatever works for you. Um, just don't separate from it. And those are really the things that I'm doing is just going to work, uh, filling my time so I don't just have ample amounts of free time and just being around the people I want to be around, you know, the people that love me and that I love back and just trying to have fun, you know. Learning that you can feel good without having to take drugs to feel good. So exactly. if we had someone listening who is, you know, doing some kind of drugs when maybe they don't think of themselves as an addict. And I, I know from my experience with people who drink, a lot of people that are alcoholics don't see themselves as alcoholics because they don't drink 24 seven, for example. Um, but sure. if, you, if you were talking to someone who's kind of, maybe they're smoking something or whatever, and I don't mean like marijuana, but you know, opioids, whatever. Um, what would you say if you, you know, I, I know you're, you're commenting on, you know, what you, what you lost in the years and the money and so on, but what if, if someone were to say something to you back in those days, is there something someone could have said or done that would have would have stopped you on that on that route? Not at all. Uh, I feel like when you're that young, you just don't tend to listen to maturity and wisdom. You're just not at that level to receive it and interpret it. Um, there's nothing anybody could have done for me or told me that would have changed the outcome of this. That's just the reality of it. Um, maybe for somebody else, but usually not the case when you're young and you're just wild and crazy and having fun and trying new things. There's really not a lot that your parents or your friends or your family can tell you that's going to change what you do for the most part. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that too. And I, it's kind of a, a sad thing. I wish there was, like I said, my secret, secret sauce. I wish there was, um, especially for, for young people. Um, yeah. So um, I do appreciate you sharing. Is there anything else you'd like to include? Oh God, we could be here for eight hours. <laughs> you know, honestly, I just think it's important for people, like no matter what background you come from, addict, non-addict, great family, bad family, rich family, poor family, really, it's just irrelevant. Everybody has an opportunity to do whatever they want to in this life and nobody or nothing can really get in the way of that. You know, I think for me, I didn't ever believe in myself. I knew I was a smart guy, but I never really believed in myself. It was a false sense of confidence is what I kind of skated by my whole life. But once I figured out that like, I could be a semi-successful real estate agent, and then I owned another business for a little while, and then I became a mobile notary. It's like, I just tried all of these things and uh, I felt success. You know, I might not be a millionaire, but like, from where I came from, like going into drug houses and 
begging for money to get high to selling, you know, 500,000 and million dollar homes and being honest and trustworthy and people are giving me their keys. Like it can be for anyone. I'm not special. You know, you just have to find the, the little bit of strength and courage you have left in yourself to give yourself a chance and love yourself. It's like, otherwise, what's the point of even living not to sound so cynical? You know, it's like you have one life, one body, why damage it with all of these horrible things, you know, nicotine, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex addiction. I mean, you name it. There's like a hundred different things you could do. That's horrible for yourself. So just try to stay away from all that and give yourself a chance and surround yourself with a really supportive circle and a circle of people who are successful. Yeah. Do you have any um, like long lasting physical effects from those years? You know, it's, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, unfortunately I can't look inside myself and see if there's any long-term damage that I'm not aware of, but as far as physical things right now, I don't feel like I have anything and knock on wood. Let's hope it stays that way. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to hear that too. Okay, Travis, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for being my guest. Um, I really appreciate you and I am so proud of you. That it actually makes me kind of want to tear up when I say that. So <laughs> thanks so much. Give Liam a hug for me. I will. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival, available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.